Just it looks a little different when you walked in this morning. Thank you, ladies who painted tirelessly throughout the week. Uh, we are going to let the paint cure before hanging up some decorations again, but I think a good freshening up was a good call for that room. And so thank you for that work. Uh, as Pastor Dan mentioned, do pray for Olivia. She's starting off today for her mission trip to Guatemala for about a month. She comes back near the end of the month. Uh, so pray for Olivia on her adventures in service. I invite you to join me in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. Lord willing, we will exit chapter 1 by the end of the day so that next week we can have exit ch Exodus chapter 2. Now I'm just messing myself up. All right. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to finish chapter 1, which is all about setting the stage of God establishing the need for a leader to pull everyone out of Egypt. And so when we get into Exodus chapter 2, we'll see that leader, Moses, as he has some very unique circumstances around his birth. As we journey through the book of Exodus, Jehovah God is going to reveal himself a bit by bit throughout the book revealing more of who he is, revealing more of his power by, by completely overwhelming the Egyptians, the entire nation. They plunder the whole nation without a single shot being fired. No military action at all. God's going to reveal himself in his character. He's going to reveal his holiness through his uh, righteous law. He's going to uh, reveal his design for human flourishing. Now, Let's be honest, when we read through the Old Testament, maybe you're reading through the scriptures throughout the year, and you get to the Old Testament law, I'm going to guess that the first thing you think is, oh, this is great for human flourishing. But that is what it is. It's God's design so that we might have our best life. Now, the, the Old Testament law was written to, uh, to the children of Israel. Uh, much of it is a national law that doesn't necessarily translate to the New Testament, but is moral law. That has transcended time, and, and that is for our good. That is for our flourishing. His laws for his people were not just arbitrary whims. They are uh, what he has designed in us so that we might have our best life, not by man's design, but by his. Our theme verse for the first major section of Exodus is Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 7. I th Elijah, I think we've got that ready. You have the theme verse for me? Yeah, let's put that up. Uh, let's say that together. Exodus chapter 6, 6 and 7. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. What a phenomenal promise. God says, I will take you to be my people. Who were they? They were nobody. They were not a great nation. They were not a powerful nation. They were certainly not a righteous nation, and yet God chose them. God does the same for us. He calls us to be his people. He chooses his people. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The same words of being chosen and God having us as his possession, he repeats in the New Testament for us. Why? So that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's really a good echo of Exodus chapter 6 as God says, I Uh, I'm redeeming you, I am choosing you to be my people, I'm going to be your God so that you will know that I am the Lord. Our God is the same God of the Old Testament that remembered his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and who fulfilled those promises to them and will fulfill his promises to us. Let's look at today's text. Exodus chapter one, we'll begin reading in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Lord, as we read this passage, we recognize pure evil when we see it. And yet, Father, sometimes when we look in our own lives, when we look around us, we excuse evil away. Father, help us to see good and evil, right and wrong, the same ways that you do. Help us to worship you for who you are. Help us to set aside our own desires, our own strivings, and live for you. So Father, I ask that you'd use this text in our lives, this very ancient text in our lives to change us and grow us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Our big idea this morning is that our worship matters. Our worship matters. Everyone worships. Now, not everybody gathers together with believers and worships God Almighty as we have gathered together today to do. Not everybody worships the true God. In fact, there are many who would say, well, I don't worship anything. But the reality, if we understand what worship is, the reality is is that everyone worships worships. So the question is not, do we worship? The question is, who do we worship or what do we worship? In today's passage, we have Pharaoh who reveres himself, who in essence worships himself. We have Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, who honors the Nile River. The Nile is one of their gods. We'll talk about that in a moment. And we're going to see what his worship brings And then we also have some lowly servant women. In contrast to the the high and mighty king of Egypt, we have these lowly servants, these midwives, 
who fear God. They worship God. And we're going to see the outcome of their lives for their honor of God. Our worship matters. Verses 15 and 16, we see that Pharaoh worships himself. We need the context of verse 9. Uh, so if you want to, you can glance a little further up or back in the passage, depending on how you think about it. Verse 9, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. We talked about this last time, how Pharaoh was afraid. He recognized how the Egyptians had, had been kind of overrun by these Israelites. These Hebrew people had continued to multiply and grow and spread out, and they were everywhere, and they even being enslaved, they are still growing and multiplying, and he sees that as a threat to himself. Pharaoh, in his culture, in his nation, was considered a god. He was worshipped by the people. He had complete control over the people. His every whim would become an, a compulsory command to the people. So in that sense, he was like a god to them. They say that power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And Pharaoh is the poster child for that, isn't he? He's revered as a god, and he views himself as a god. There's no humility in him. And so he thinks, how dare these Hebrew people grow to such strength? But you know, you don't have to be a person of great status or power like the Pharaoh was to view yourself as a god. In fact, every time we take it upon ourselves to get what we want, contrary to what God wants for our lives, we are shoving the real God aside and supplanting him with ourselves, aren't we? We're treating ourselves as our own little g God. Right? I mean, isn't doing everything he desires part of the defining characteristics of who our God is? He's the one who does what he desires. Scripture tells us as much. Uh, in, in Psalm 115, verse 3, it says this, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And the psalmist is using this as a, as a contrast, declaring a contrast between the one true God, Jehovah, and the, the false gods of the nations around them. In, in the verses around it in Psalm 115, he says this, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Their idols have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. He's very accurately describing the ineffectiveness of false gods. But what about our God? Our God is in the heavens, and everything that he wants to accomplish, he does. Why? Because he's eternal. He's powerful, and he's good. Idols are powerless. The idolatry that Pharaoh is exhibiting in verses 15 and 16 of today's passage is the idolatry of self. Setting himself up. Setting his desires up above God. And how does he worship himself? Well, he's worshiping himself by defining who gets to live and who gets to die. 
So do you see how I get to the conclusion that Pharaoh is worshiping himself? He has set himself up as the supreme God of his land. In the biblical worldview, who alone has the authority to take life? It's God, right? God may delegate his responsibility within specific parameters, and he certainly does. The Old Testament law has plenty of examples where he commands a life to be taken in response to their action, right? Capital punishment wasn't uh, something that people dreamed up. It was a command of God in, back in Genesis when after the flood, uh, God commands Noah directly, if a man uh, intently takes the life of another man, then that man needs to be put to death, right? And then that's reflected more in the law uh, with certain what we would call capital crimes. God commanded that those individuals' lives be forfeited. God delegates his responsibility to take a life in certain circumstances. But Pharaoh has not been delegated that responsibility, has he? Pharaoh does not have the authority to order the death of all these baby boys. That's what he's doing. He's commandeering God's authority to kill and require them to murder the baby boys right at birth. Now, before we get on to the response of the midwives, I want to point out a detail from verse 15. If you'd read that with me. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, and the other Puah, the king of Egypt, who is he? We talked about it last week a little bit that we can kind of line up the biblical timeline with a historical timeline. We can probably get a good educated guess as to which Pharaoh we're talking about, but the scripture doesn't name him. But who are the two midwives? We have their names right here. I may not be pronouncing them right, but we have them. Scripture does not record the name of the Pharaoh, but we do have these two midwives, these, these slaves in the nation. So there's two things to note from these details of, of verse 15. Uh, first of all, this reads as a record of history because it is a record of history. This is not uh, some fictional literature. In fact, ancient fictional literature would have not given names to minor characters. In fact, we, we read about these two Hebrew midwives in this little passage today and then never again. Pharaoh's a main character. Pharaoh's a main character in this portion, and then fast forward 80 years to the actual Exodus, Pharaoh's a main character there, and he's not named. Prominent figures would be named in ancient, fig in ancient fictional literature, but not these minor characters. Well, but God has a different purpose. He's actually revealing history to us. He's recording history for us. So that's the first thing. The second note is that there's no realistic expectation that Shipra and Pua were the only two midwives. Okay. Fast forward again 80 years to the Exodus, and Scripture records that there were 600,000 men plus wives and children. So there were definitely more than two midwives at this time. These are just representatives of the whole uh, so back to the, the command from Pharaoh uh, to, to kill the baby boys. How out of touch must this man be to think that women whose, whose livelihood comes from helping bring life into the world would actually follow through with this command and kill the baby boys? First of all, midwives were often women who did not have children of their own. 
uh, which, which kind of makes sense because maybe Dr. Anderson can correct me later, but babies are notorious for coming whenever they good and well feel like, right? <laughs> it's not like you can plan specifically when a baby is going to come, especially when uh, before the time of surgeries and stuff like that. Babies are notorious for coming when, they're, when it's only convenient to themselves, and so these midwives had to be available any time, any day, to go and help. Secondly, anyone who is in the profession of helping women give birth, they love babies. You don't do that if you're not actually uh, one who loves new life. So they were never going to follow Pharaoh's command. Can we be honest? They weren't. These are not hardened soldiers that are going out on some kind of execution mission. These were midwives. They love people, and they help people. So Pharaoh was a bit out of his mind to think that they were going, that these kind and loving women were going to act in, in this manner. But he gives the command anyway. That just shows more of his idolatry, to not understand actual people. He's so caught up in his own bubble. Our worship matters. Pharaoh worshiped himself. Because he had such an idolatrous view of himself, he has stooped so low as to command the murder of newborn babies in order to get what he wanted. And he didn't give it a second thought. Didn't matter to him at all. Pharaoh worships himself. Verses 17 through 19, we see the midwives fear God. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. This is fascinating. At best, these women are withholding some truth from Pharaoh. And quite possibly, the women are just flat out lying. Uh, we don't know. Scripture doesn't, doesn't actually tell us uh, which it is. They say that the Hebrew women give birth before they get there, and that may well be. But it may also be because in preparation for the birth, the, the midwives say, okay, look, Pharaoh's commanded us to kill the baby boys as soon as we recognize that they're a boy. So when you call us, you know what? Wait as long as you can to send for us. <laughs> or, or maybe they just weren't uh, in a hurry to get to uh, to the, the women because they knew that they were uh, under orders to kill the babies. But quite honestly, they probably just ignored the edict and let the babies live. The text of Scripture renders no judgment on the truthfulness of the women's statement. There is no um, morality call given there. But they are commended for fearing God. So we have zero idea how much time has passed between the command of verse 16 to kill the baby boys and the reprimand where Pharaoh calls in these midwives to say, what have you been doing in verse 18? But it must have been enough time, uh, probably many years actually, for it to become evident that there was no lack of Hebrew boys in the land. Uh, and, and I say it took years because the, the evidence is that, uh, first of all, when babies are very little, uh, they kind of get wrapped in a blanket and they all look the same, whether a boy or a girl. Now, it's not the same in our culture today. Uh, but the fact was then that it took a while before uh, little boys would be 
uh, old enough to be dressed differently than what their sisters might have been. So it took uh, quite a while for Pharaoh to recognize, hey, uh, I commanded all the baby boys to be, to be killed at birth, and yet there's still lots of Hebrew little boys around. The key is, verse 17, that the midwives feared God and not Pharaoh. Remember, Pharaoh is the God of the land in the sense that he has complete authority at, uh, at, at, his, <laughs> at his whim, at his nod to just the right person. He could have had these midwives executed. And they knew that. They knew that they were taking their own lives into their hands by disobeying the Pharaoh. But they feared God and not Pharaoh. Subsequently, God blesses them. The midwives are blessed by God in verses 20 and 21. So God dealt well with the midwives. Scripture doesn't tell us exactly what he means by that, but part of it is probably that protection from Pharaoh. Pharaoh could have just had all the midwives in the entire land executed. He said, nope, you have to use the Egyptian ones. You can't use the Hebrew ones. He dealt well with them. And the people multiplied. So the nation of Israel continued to multiply, continued to grow, grow strong. Verse 21, and because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So these women, again, not, not necessarily every midwife uh, was without child, but that was a common thing. And God blessed them with families of their own. Pharaoh's whole point was to weaken the Hebrew people and it's backfired, backfired spectacularly. They continue to grow in might. They feared God. They worshiped God rather than obeying Pharaoh. And God blessed them greatly. Our worship matters. Pharaoh's worshiping himself, and it's not working out well for him. And, I mean, probably everyone in here knows the basic theme of Exodus, how the ten plagues are coming and Pharaoh finally does relent. I mean, it doesn't go well for Pharaoh a generation later either. Spectacularly so. The midwives feared God. God blesses them. Pharaoh's worshiping himself and his plans are being disrupted. Our worship matters. Notice the ones who disobey the egomaniac and instead fear God receive blessing. Now, I can't guarantee that if you worship God, if you genuinely worship God with your heart and soul, being a believer in Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you genuinely worship God with your heart, I can't guarantee that you will have children or health or finances. The, the scripture doesn't make that promise. The scripture is clear. God blesses those who fear him. Now, he gets to choose how he's going to bless each and every one of us. But if we fear him, if we worship him, if we entrust him with our eternal salvation and we entrust him with our day-to-day -day life, living in a godly manner rather than living, let's be honest, an easier life, God will bless he provides for those who let go of their own strength and put their trust in him, and that's what these midwives have done. So the passage started out with Pharaoh worshiping himself, trying to get what he wants. In the middle here, we have the midwives fearing God and being blessed by God, and then the passage concludes with Pharaoh worshiping the Nile. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people. This command doesn't go just to the Hebrew midwives or just to the Hebrew people. 
God, uh, Pharaoh commands all his people, every son that is born of the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. The ancient Egyptians uh, believed in a, in a divine order. They believed that there were gods who, little g gods, who controlled all sorts of aspects of life. So they worshipped the sun because the sun is essential to life. And they worshipped the Nile because also the Nile was essential to life. And they worshipped a god of fertility. And they worshipped the god of frogs and flies and other bizarre things as well. So commanding the baby boys to be thrown in the Nile, Pharaoh is actually accomplishing some, some of his objectives here. First of all, the boys are going to die. Throw them in there. One way or another, they're going to die. Secondly, this edict to carry out such a vile order is now on everyone, not just on the Hebrew midwives. So maybe there will be boys thrown into the Nile, and we believe there were. We know there were. Thirdly, because the Nile River was so key to their livelihood, it was revered, it was worshipped. So when the Nile was pleased with people, there would be water for the crops and for the animals. And when the Nile was not pleased, they would suffer drought. And so the Nile was viewed as both giving and taking life. And if the Nile so chose to take the life of a baby boy that was floating in it, then so be it. It's what he would think. So Pharaoh could offer these boys as a sacrifice to appease his God. This command to throw the baby boys in the Nile was not just a way to murder someone and have the water wash that away, but it was his form of worship. Pharaoh worships his own gods. He worships himself. He worships the Nile. He's worshiping convenience. That's when we're good at worshiping in our culture. Pharaoh would feel threatened by the Israelites because they don't worship him. These Hebrew women that are mentioned, they did not uh, fear Pharaoh, they feared God. So despite all of his clever plans and all of his scheming and all of his, oh, this is definitely going to work, Pharaoh ends up being thoroughly outsmarted. By the end of chapter 1, which is where we are today, we find that the Israelites are still increasing. They're still multiplying. They're still spreading. And that shouldn't surprise us because this is exactly what God promised to Jacob. He said in Genesis chapter 46, verse 3, God tells Jacob, Do not be afraid to go down to, Jacob, to Egypt, excuse me, for I will make you into a great nation there. Remember at the beginning of chapter 1, how many people had entered into Egypt of Jacob's family? It was 70 persons total. And now... They're in Egypt, they have been for centuries, and they have grown into a great nation. One that, that threatens Pharaoh, or at least he feels threatened by them. Uh, author Paul Tripp, uh, just put it, put it this way, sin causes us to place ourselves at the center of our universe. That's what Pharaoh has done. He's worshiping himself. Sin causes us to be obsessed with what we feel, what we want, and what we think we need. Sin causes us to set up our own little kingdom of one where our desire is the functional law of the land. And as little kings, we co-opt people around us into service of our kingdom and our purposes. 
And when they refuse or unwittingly get in the way of what we want, we rage against them. That's what Pharaoh's doing. Sin causes us to worship ourselves. Sin elevates ourselves to a place that God did not design us to be. Our worship matters. Worship is about the heart. It always has been. Pharaoh's heart is focused only on his own selfish desires. In contrast, the midwives' hearts were focused on God, even at the risk of their own lives of having disobeyed Pharaoh. So I ask you, where is your heart centered today? Are you living for your desires, or are you seeking God's desires in your life? Are you ruling your own kingdom doing whatever it takes to get your desired result? Or are you letting the king of the universe, our savior, rule in your life? Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to Christ, our eternal king of kings. Father, the only way we can do that is having submitted ourselves, surrendered ourselves to him through the saving blood of, of Calvary. And then we do it day in and day out by remembering that, that our life is, is because you have given it. We don't deserve anything in this life, everything good you have given us. You're the one who gives us the breath that we enjoy in this very moment. And should you desire to take that breath away, then there's nothing any of us can do to stop it. All that say that you, O oh Lord, are supreme above all things. And we would do well to worship you in all things. To give you the glory due your name for our lives, for our standing, for our careers, for our families, for our health, for whatever it is we have in our lives, we would do good to worship you for it. So Father, I ask that you'd help us to do that. Help us to be like these lowly Hebrew women that are mentioned by name in this brief passage, who chose rather to risk everything to fear God than to just go along with what would be easier. It's always easier to uh, not risk your life, even if it means taking the life of someone else. Lord, I don't think any of us are facing quite life and death choices like they did. But your word tells us that sin, when it is mature, leads to death. That it leads to a separation from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize sin in our lives, to turn from it, to, to recognize how in our hearts we desire things that are ungodly. We desire things that are against your character, uh, that are against your commands. And that you would help us to uh, not only just recognize that there's sin there, but to turn from it. And Lord, the only way we can do that is when we, when we substitute righteousness unrighteousness. So help us to pursue godly pursuits of knowing you, of being part of, uh, of community as the, as the church, to stir up one another to love and good works, to encourage one another.
to correct one another. Father, we ask that as you uh, use uh, the, the narrative, the story of, uh, of this passage in our hearts, that you would help us to, to recognize the ways that we do elevate ourselves to the level of, of a God as an, as an idol in our own lives, that we would instead worship you. Father, thank you for the cross that makes that possible so that we might live for you, so we might have our sins forgiven. Pray that you would help us to trust you more and more each day. In Jesus' name, amen.